after a bit of a hiatus, Ireland on the Fly is back for a one-off episode in the wake of COP26 and the world's attempts to try and halt climate change. So renowned international fisheries scientist Ken Whelan spent the week in Glasgow as part of a delegation highlighting the plight of the Atlantic salmon in this changed world. And I wanted to catch up with Ken to find out what the week was like, how much was achieved and just what a one and a half degree increase in global temperature would mean for the future of the Atlantic salmon. But first, I asked him how and why he ended up at COP26. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, three months ago, I had absolutely no idea I was going to end up at COP26. It was just something that was on the television. Um, to be fair, I have had some connection with that in the past because uh, up to about 10 years ago, I was chairperson of the um, Biodiversity Forum here in Ireland. And at that time, I can remember very clearly some of the material we were looking at and so on. Um, was actually uh, material that was used then in preparation for earlier COPs. And also I've been very involved with the North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization and um, that's run on EU lines. So the format and everything else of COP was actually surprisingly familiar uh, familiar to me, which was a big advantage. But how I ended up in COP was very interesting because there's a famous glass artist called uh, Joseph Rosano and Joseph worked uh, for a while uh, with Waterford Glass and he's a keen angler, he's fished the shore and all the all the waters that you're very fond of. Um, but Joseph approached us about maybe a year ago with this concept of these uh, glass salmon which he had developed. And the idea that glass salmon primarily was a glass school, which was a play on the word of fish school as well as school as in children. And he had been working with the Smithsonian in the US uh, to get children to start uh, collecting water samples out of rivers and using environmental DNA to look for the presence of Atlantic salmon, particularly in rivers where they were recovering. And he approached us with a view to very kindly offering us some of the salmon for our annual auction. And our fundraiser saw these uh, salmon and thought, this is worthy of something a lot more than a simple auction. We must be able to use these to make an impact. And uh, Pedro Landale, who's our chief uh, fundraiser, Pedro saw this ad for COP26 and he had this vision of uh, of Boris Johnson and uh, uh, um, President Biden actually walking under a school of glass salmon. And that was the kickoff. And from that little nugget, um, uh, he managed to put together a team Uh, of NGOs that span both the Pacific and the Atlantic and talked to Joseph and then they organized various uh, glass uh, centers around the world to actually uh, make and dispatch under his under his guidance and dispatch glass salmon then across to Glasgow for COP. But actually getting a space in COP was quite an undertaking because as you can imagine there was a huge huge demand on space in COP But really, this whole idea of using salmon, and in this case, obviously, it wasn't just Atlantic salmon, it was all species of salmon, as an indicator of change, both in freshwater and in the marine, just caught the attention of the organizers. And they kindly offered us a spot which was perfect in the canteen. I think they saw it as a bit of a throwaway location. But in fact, everyone had to go in and eat. So from our point of view, it could not have been better in terms of where it was uh, where it was located. But we were very, very anxious to make sure that people didn't see this just as salmon. But people would see this in the context of our catch line, which was cold, clean water. The idea that cold, clean water meant an awful lot more 
to a lot of people than just salmon. And during my time at COP, I was bowled over by the number of people who were attracted just by that uh, simple uh, catchphrase. I had really interesting people from Africa. I had a very good guy who came to me several times from Tunisia. Um, I had people from the Pacific Islands, all of whom could relate to this idea of uh, the clean water and the cool water. So it actually worked very well. To me, also, it seems to be the interesting thing is the importance of symbolism. Yeah, I think that was I think that was really important. And to some extent, uh, maybe maybe it's unfair to say this, but to some extent, I think COP missed out on that. Um, it was very, very well organized. I must say that. And f- full credit to the organizers. They kept us all very safe in the context of COVID. But it was also very well structured and well organized. But in reality, it was quite sterile in the sense that there really was a space there for symbolism and there was a space there for displays. And there was a few stunning displays, but there were very, very few of them. And um, we had a lot of connection with various groups of native peoples, particularly in North America. Uh, They were partners with us in organizing this particular event. And I was very fortunate a couple of years ago to spend some time in Seattle to actually go and meet some of the uh, native peoples in and around Vancouver who are seeing their particular populations of salmon decline. And as a result of that, some of the really iconic species, such as the um, such as the killer whales, the orca and so on, are declining some of the pods that are dependent on salmon. So to meet with those people, and also we met with quite a lot of people from South America as well. I had worked in Chile uh, for a while, and we met some people from South America as well, who were again very taken with this idea of cold, clean water. But their lives are very, very much driven by symbols. Their lives are very much driven by the idea of creatures being totally iconic in terms of their particular environment and the need to retain these creatures and everything that goes with them. So I think the symbolism of the glass salmon and the symbolism of uh, the school of fish, if you like, representing people all coming together, that was really very powerful and people remarked on it on several occasions. So it really was a centerpiece as such. I think you're right. I think there's something about that symbolism of it that we've lost and, and that they missed a trick at COP. Um, because, you know, my image of COP26 is people in suits in uh, meeting rooms or, you know, sitting on stage. You know, it was all very drab and dry. And I know, you know, they were trying to do good work. But sometimes, you know, you forget maybe the importance of symbolism and something like that. We're kind of losing a lot of that, aren't we, in the kind of modern digital world that we live in? I think we are. And I think also the fact that... Uh you know, the the, the, um, the connection that that will give you, and uh, you know, as anglers and as uh, both of us very, very keen on being in the outdoors and being on riverbanks and uh, seashores and so on. Um, I like to think that, you know, we, we have still retained to some extent that connection. And certainly I've been privileged throughout my career to have maintained that connection because my work is around water all the time and it's mostly in the outdoors. But there are a lot of people that uh, lose that connection. So, with our conversations and our involvement with the native peoples, it really does remind you of how fundamental and important it is. But just if I may go back to a point that you made there about the men with the suits, to give our listeners some idea of what it was like. Um, really, if you can imagine the RDS on steroids, I think that's really what you were what you were looking at in terms of uh, the, the, the size of the actual event centre. But it was divided up into various components. And when I mentioned NASCO earlier, that's what I was saying. I'm quite used to this sort of approach and it has to be done in this way. So there was a very, very tight and very full agenda. 
So you had the negotiating teams and you had the people that were really at the, at the, at the, the coalface of actually negotiating the deals and trying to work through how they were going to achieve these very, very lofty ambitions. In addition to that, though, you had a whole section that was actually uh, devoted to presentations where you had all sorts of different uh, public events going on where people could actually come in and they could um, explain to you, either from a scientific point of view or a management point of view or a sociological point of view, what they were doing to try and help with the actual push towards this low low carbon world. And some of the uh, events and some of the stands were absolutely outstanding. Um, there was a number, uh, there were a number of presentations uh, at the Arctic stand. And obviously, given my interest in salmon and their connection with the uh, with the Arctic and with cold water and indeed the Pacific salmon, just the same. Um, these events were of particular interest to me. But what struck me was two things about them. Number one, how extraordinarily young um, the scientists were that were giving the presentations. They weren't old doddery old lads like myself. They were, these were young, very vibrant young people with the most amazing grasp of the importance of their own work. And there was one chap in particular that was uh, modeling how ice actually melts. And that might seem a bit obscure, but it was really interesting what he was saying. Basically, what he was saying was this is highly, highly complex and it's been happening for, for you know, millennia where ice has melted and ice has refrozen. And it's not as simple as it's portrayed on the television. And he gets frustrated sometimes where some of the events that he might consider as being quasi-natural events, if you like, are portrayed as disasters and the world is going to end. Whereas the more subtle features of what's happening in terms of the ice melting and the movement of the cold water, these are lost completely because they are more complex. But it was just a stunning presentation. And there were a number of those. And uh, the other feature that really, really caught me and pure serendipity, I was going looking for some uh, colleagues in, in, in one of the back rooms and I was moving through this area where the displays were on and I saw this big sign that said Pete huh? and it caught my eye and I looked underneath and there was this beautiful little freshwater tank with a section of our our, our bog plants, you know, the, the, the lovely sphagnum moss was in there in the tank and bubbling away and everything else. Then I went in and I saw all these maps of Africa and I was sort of saying, what's all this about? And then I saw a little map of Ireland. I saw a little map of Scotland and I got talking to this wonderfully articulate lady that explained to me that um, in Africa, there's a real, real need to conserve boglands and that they're raising huge amount of money in the context of boglands being so important in terms of carbon retention and that Ireland and Scotland were linked into this really big picture. And I, I, it, that was the interesting thing about COP was it gave you this much wider focus in terms of what your, what your work could mean. And certainly, you know, as I looked at some of the uh, displays in that area and talked to people, I went there a couple of times, it really struck me that some of the areas that um, biologists and ecologists and communities are involved in here and indeed some of our state organizations reclaiming the bogs and so on. This is actually linked in with a much, much bigger picture. And that that makes it very exciting, mm. you know, and it gives all sorts of uh, openings and opportunities. Can I ask you, though, Ken, do you feel how much was achieved or will be achieved? You know, I think of Greta Thunberg's blah, blah, blah comment there's a certain frustration felt uh, about the events at COP26. Um, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. 
And I'll tell you why. Uh, again, because I was president in ASCO for four years and got very involved with international negotiations and got very involved with diplomats whose jobs it, uh, whose jobs it was to, to, to conduct these negotiations. And the structure and format of them, the pace at which they move, it actually makes people really, really frustrated, as you say. Um, but I think you have to stand back from that. I mean, you're trying to, in this particular instance, collectively, we are collectively trying to turn this enormous wheel. So it is going to turn relatively slowly, despite the frustration that we feel. And I feel a stronger frustration probably than most in the sense that I became involved with climate change issues now about probably 15, maybe 20 years ago. And certainly 10 years ago, um, I co-authored uh, a report on marine climate change. And a lot of the stuff that we had in that report, a lot of the stuff that we're doing in Burishul in the catchment at that stage is as relevant today as it was then. And we've seen no action. So I do appreciate that people feel frustrated. But there was a real sense of, despite the slow pace, uh, strangely, there was a sense of urgency. People did realize that we had to keep this 1.5 centigrade target very, very much in focus. And there was a few really quite substantial wins. I think the win in relation to um, the 2030 agreement in relation to forests, where we now have an agreement that in terms of forests and the biodiversity that actually link in with them, that there will be by 2030 a determined effort uh, to ring fence these really important forest areas. The big question is whether or not this is going to be implemented. And we've all seen what has been happening in Brazil and so on, but they have signed up. So the important thing now is to make sure that the world's policemen actually follow this through. And again, that was one of the outputs that I thought was very encouraging. Um, they may not have achieved the breakthrough agreements that they were that they were hoping for, but they have a, have actually firmed up on the on the pathway, on the roadway to actually achieving this. Um, and I, I thought that was I thought that was interesting. And I certainly uh, in my discussions with various groups, uh, the the big the big missing link still is the is the system that needs to be put in place to support the smaller countries and the smaller communities that are already suffering. And I know we've heard a lot about this, but they were really very, very annoyed at the end of the two weeks. They had seen no real progress in terms of seeing how is this going to happen? It's a little bit like the, the, the spread of the of the COVID vaccines. Everybody talks it up, but on the ground, they're not actually seeing it. And yet they're seeing the effects of climate change. So I think that's a to me, that's that's worry. So the big, big concern I'd have is the time we have left ourselves to achieve what we need to achieve. I think the ambition is there. I think we have most of the bigger players now have bought into it. But I am not sure that they realize that there, there is no vaccine for climate change and they must achieve within a very short number of years. So I think that's where the concern would lie. Talk to me, Ken, about the role people listen to this and might go, okay, well, you know, we're aware of climate change and how the weather is changing and how temperatures warming. But the context of the Atlantic salmon, it's a, but looking at that, that can kind of tell us and show us how the climate is faring one way or the other. Um, very much so, I think. Uh, interestingly, over the last three months since we got, or since I got certainly very involved with this, with this idea of going to COP and uh, trying to present these ideas at COP, um, I've become much more conscious of the fact that I need to maybe start talking about salmon in, in, in the plural, way beyond the kind of Atlantic salmon, because it's true of all salmon species that they are really 
important in terms of indicator species. But maybe one statistic which our colleagues from uh, the Pacific came up with, which really blew my mind, was that the 18 of the biggest watersheds or catchments uh, in North America, uh, they have uh, the ability to store about 6 billion tonnes of carbon. That's many, many times the actual emissions of the US. So we started, even at COP, we started to rethink this and we started to say, well, what are we doing in terms of salmon conservation that means more than conserving salmon? And of course, when you look at what's happening now in terms of the catchments, and let's go again back to the catchments here in Ireland, um, if you look at the work that's been done at the moment to reclaim the bogs that I mentioned earlier in terms of staunching uh, some of the drainage channels and so on in the bogs, this um, this determined effort to try and make sure that these incredible peatlands can store more and more carbon, that's directly linked in with salmon catchments. The recreation of wetlands and our theme, which was the cold, clean water, when you think about it in terms of biodiversity loss, in terms of stemming biodiversity loss, um, actually looking for an achievement around cold, clean water makes really perfect sense in terms of a fundamental thrust that's needed to try and look at um, how we can actually gain back what we've already lost. And certainly in terms of salmon, the big advantage we have is, of course, that they wander both across freshwater and across the marine. And some of the scientific technology that's now available to us in terms of being able to look at the biological logs that these fish actually store in their bodies as they move across the ocean and looking at the ability to be able to look at the chemistry and scales at the chemistry in the flesh of the fish in terms of what they've been eating and so on and to be able to interrogate that and to find out where in the ocean the fish have been where they have encountered problems where they have done well we now have the ability to literally use them as monitors and the big advantage of the salmon is the fact that if you're getting sufficient numbers back they come back into your hands you don't need to go chasing them all over the ocean they do all the hard work you just wait there and you sample them when they come back. Is it hard, Ken, to get the message across when there's so many other issues at play? You know, and we've spoken about, you know, I suppose this is part of the problem as well in the sense of everything is so interlinked. But then when you're representing one issue, you know, like the salmon and cold, clean water for the salmon, that, you know, governments or, you know, interested bodies, it's, you're kind of further down the list. How, how do you, I suppose, how do you get that message across that why, why what you're saying is as important as what everybody else is saying? I think we're probably back to symbolism again, in that um, uh, certainly the cold, clean water um, phrase really drew in a lot of interest from people that wouldn't have salmon in their own country, even in their own continent. But the idea that the, uh, that simple message meant so much to them in terms of the biodiversity component of it and also in terms of, say, for example, uh, areas that are very much prone now to drought. So there was one uh, chap I met a couple of times now who's very interesting. He was a diplomat from Tunisia and he gave me some of the statistics in terms of Tunisia in terms of what they were looking at. And just before he left for COP, they were looking at temperatures of over 30 degrees centigrade. They'd never seen these sort of temperatures in November before. And he was saying the amount of arid area that's now been generated as a result of these massive, great continuous droughts is, is absolutely enormous. So 
Cold, clean water to him was the lifesaver. This was actually going to make sure that his country was habitable again. So for different people, it had it had different meanings. And it was interesting because you go to these places to open a conversation. You generally don't go to these places to find a solution, but you open a conversation. And for us, we got uh, the team that actually developed and put this on display. I was only a small cog in that wheel. Um, the people who, who put this together have now begun, as I said earlier, to see this in a completely in a completely different context. And if you add up all of the watersheds into which salmon go, and remember, Korea has very big numbers of salmon. Japan has very big numbers of salmon. Russia has both Pacific and Atlantic salmon. So these big, these are big, big areas. So if you can actually look at uh, particular uh, catchments or watersheds and start doing your sums on those in terms of what's uh, at the moment now uh, uh, something that's coming very fast, I think, in Britain and Ireland is the whole idea of putting back vegetation, re putting back forestry and vegetation to cool down the water to make sure that the habitats and so on are protected. But when you think of the consequences of that, that will help greatly in terms of flooding. It will help greatly in terms of agricultural discharges. So those those are the hooks, if you like, around the salmon world that I think we can actually use to get people interested in the idea of using it, as you said earlier, as the as the canary. If this fish is doing well, all is well with the world. That That's really a, really a very strong message. And when you explain to people, because they look on you at first as if you're a bit of a nut taking one species, as you say, out of this huge world uh, of, of different varieties of species. But when you explain to them what you're trying to do, um, and what you're trying to get people to think about, they can see the significance of it because you're spanning both the fresh and the salt water. So we talk about one, one and a half degrees in terms of kind of the, what we're, the aim is for in terms of kind of maximum uh, increase. Do we know what the effect one and a half degrees Celsius would have on the Atlantic salmon? Like what would Atlantic salmon fisheries look like a one and a half degree increase? Well, the uh, shocking fact is that 2018-2021 we have seen freshwater temperatures that are very very close to the limits in terms of uh, what the Atlantic salmon certainly is comfortable in and not far off where they just can't live. So for example this year a colleague of mine was sampling in Donegal and he found quite a lot of dead stoneflies during that really really warm week in July. And he was recording uh, flowing water temperatures of 25, 26 degrees. And at one point in one of the streams, it reached 27. And I mean, that's just just uh, uninhabitable from a, from a salmon point of view. And uh, if you Google uh, Marine Scotland Science and look at the temperature maps that they have produced uh, in the highlands in Scotland, they are just amazing. Because you have a situation in Scotland, a little bit artificial in the sense of these massive great estates. And the estates have been geared around the management of deer and the, 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 the management of all the, all the different uh, uh, bird species that, that are there for, for the estates and uh, the grouse and so on. As a result of that, a huge amount of the trees have actually disappeared. And because the trees are no longer there, because of the actual um, uh, position and so on of the mountains and the streams running down the mountains, they are very exposed to direct sunlight. And it has been seen now for the last decade or more that some of these streams are really suffering as, as a result 
of increasing water temperatures. And you would not think that that would be the case in the highlands. You would imagine that up high like that, that these little streams would be insulated. But in fact, there's a huge program, for example, going on on the River Dee at the moment of uh, uh, putting back the vegetation, as I mentioned earlier, and putting back in the trees. And it's really working in terms of beginning to cool down uh, these particular areas. So um, if we go much beyond that 1.5 degrees, or if we go beyond it at all, we will actually see a major change, in t- I think, in terms of the range of the Atlantic salmon. I don't think it'll be a situation where salmon will disappear, but I think the range will change completely. Yeah, like essentially, would they be pushed further and further north? That you know, you it could be the case of that you wouldn't see them around Ireland, Scotland anymore. That you'd nearly be talking them around Greenland, you know, Iceland would be nearly the southern limit of it. Like, well, we're already seeing trends like that in the sense that the stocks that are doing well are the stocks in Russia and the stocks in northern Norway, the stocks in Finland. Whereas as you come further south, there are more and more problems. So I think we're already beginning to see that that trend. There's one there's one bright spark though that that we shouldn't lose sight of is that the salmon, for example, that live in the chalk streams in the south of England, and the salmon that live in Spain. People are always surprised that there are salmon in Spain, but some of the most beautiful salmon rivers in the world are are in uh, Galicia and Asturias in northern Spain. Um, but those rivers, the salmon are actually adapted uh, to very warm temperatures during the summer. So they may actually provide a little nugget in terms of if we get to the stage of having to put in place gene banks, they may be able to form the foundation for stocks of fish that have much greater tolerance to temperatures than the uh, salmon, say, for example, that will be spawning in the mountains in May or in the highlands that I mentioned earlier. So that's why um, I think the research component is so important here. We can't just look at it in simplistic terms. We have to try and understand why particular stocks may be in a position to be able to do much better than others. And perhaps with the technologies that we have available, we may be actually able to replace uh, some of the more northerly stocks with some of the more southerly stocks in the future. That's not We're not capable of doing that at the moment, but that's certainly something that we need to be thinking about. So it is, we could be looking at artificial stocking then in the future. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think that to, to some extent this whole debate about stocking and so on has, has really become hugely polarised. But if you look at the job that has been done, for example, in Norway, where they have a salmon fluke that basically wiped out all of the salmon in, in I think it was 30 or 40 rivers, they have managed to gene bank the actual uh, genetic code, if you like, for those particular rivers and to bring back very substantial numbers of what in essence are wild fish back into those particular locations. So if you are in a situation where you're um, doing what we did in the olden days, where we're taking fish out of the stock, we're holding them in captivity, they're getting more and more closely related, we're then expecting their progeny to do as well as the pure wild fish. All of that works against nature and nature is just not going to respond well. Whereas if you can actually design a salmon and mimic the actual genome of that salmon so that you have the features that are critical to its success, there's a real possibility that you can, in fact, uh, reconstitute a salmon population. And they have done that very successfully, as I say, in quite a number of places in Norway. The salmon never fully disappeared. But the tiny remnant that was there with the gene banking and with very, very careful management, they managed to reinstate those stocks. So I would be very hopeful that these these are the sort of areas we need to look at. Maybe it's pie in the sky. I don't know. 
But I don't think we should sit back and watch them disappear down the plug hole. I think we should be thinking about some of these radical ideas. And the other idea that I like really a great deal is the idea of strongholds. And they're very hot on this in North America. I think we need to look at the uh, stocks of fish that have some very special features. And we need to ring fence them to make absolutely certain that any uh, impacts that are there are completely minimized. And uh, we know already from genetic profile uh, profiling that some, some stocks have really very, very special traits. And I think we should be thinking about um, the stronghold concept. And I don't think it's going to be a matter of, uh, of basically one for everyone in the audience in the future. I think we'll have to make those choices. And I think those choices are going to be tough. But again, if we can get the background information together at this stage, we can make very considered choices in terms of how we reconstitute the stocks. Is it a race against time? It very much is, isn't it, Ken? It is very much a race against time. And um, people often say to me, well, Ken, how long have you been working on salmon? And at this stage, it is actually now 40 years. So and they say, my God, that's an awful length of time. And I said, well, it takes four years in Ireland to make a grills. It takes five years to make a multi-sea winter fish. And in terms of springers, I've seen eight generations. What do I know? So if we're going to reconstitute populations of fish, you're looking at decades in terms of, of trying to do that. And it needs to, the work needs to start now. I remember very clearly when we um, uh, when we started uh, the the process of of uh, basically negotiating with the fishermen to remove the uh, the drift nets. Um, I remember a friend of my dad's ringing me from the Slaney and uh, asking me uh, in a very emotional way, you know, wh when did I think he was he was next going to be in a position to uh, kill a spring salmon and bring it home and have that lovely centerpiece in the table um, for for dinner. And I said to him that I thought it would be at least 50 years based on the models that we had at that stage to try and bring back uh, what was happening. And that was before a lot of the impacts that we've seen over the last 15 years or so. So these these are very long term. These are very long term programs. And there's no way of actually short circuiting them. And that's why I've said several times that I really think we've lost a decade and we cannot afford to lose any more. Yeah, exactly. And it's an exponential, the increases, isn't it, as, as, it, as it kicks in? Like, can, can I ask you this finally? Um, I'm a firm believer in, you know, people making themselves self-aware and educating themselves, getting the right information, because I think, you know, as an ang salmon angler, you know, you're so interested in your own quarry, your own environment. Um, and if you're a custodian of that and if you have self-interest in helping to preserve it, all the better. So for people maybe to find out a bit more, where should they be keeping an eye on things in terms of kind of educating themselves and learning more about what they can can do to help um, the salmon? Where, where's the best places you'd recommend for people? Yeah, there are quite a lot of really good um, uh, IT resources, if you like, out there now. And uh, certainly uh, the group I mentioned, the North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization, they have some really nice material on their site now um, as a result of what we call the International Year of the Salmon in 2019. They make, made a big effort with various communities and, and uh, Mark Boyden down in Cork on behalf of NASCO has produced a beautiful uh, children's video on why salmon are important and a beautiful booklet about strongholds. So the North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization is certainly one 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 particular location. Um, the Wild Salmon Center is stunning. Their website that's for Pacific salmon. And again, if you Google Wild Salmon Center, you'll see an enormous number of links to various videos, uh, scientific papers, and so on. 
And then, of course, our own two organizations. So the Atlantic Salmon Trust, we have a lot of material on the Atlantic Salmon Trust website. And then we have combined forces with all of the major NGOs um, in the UK to form the Missing Salmon Alliance. And it was through the Missing Salmon Alliance then that I ended up uh, um, to uh, I ended up on my visit to NASC, uh, to uh, COP. So I think I think that if you made a start in those locations, I think people will then find the links to other uh, other locations. And we're very fortunate in Ireland to have some really really top class salmon researchers in our universities. And certainly uh, Jens Carlson in UCD and uh, Phil McGinnity in Cork and so on. If people Google those universities and Google salmon and Google genetics, they'll actually find that there's a wealth of different information there. And people are very conscious now of making um, science available to the layperson. And on the um, AST website, we have a series of booklets that I'm very proud of called the Blue Books. And these are the interface between the heavy science and the uh, uh, and the layperson's need for advice and the manager's need for advice. So there's a lot of resource out there. Brilliant. And I, like I, you know, I can't emphasize enough. It's 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 up to all of us to play our own part and and to be educating. And the information is out there. Obviously, once it's the right information, um, but that we all need to be playing our part in this race against time. Ken Whelan, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you very much indeed, Dara. It was a great pleasure. So there you have it. Some fascinating insights from Ken Whelan on his week at COP26 and why it's a race against time for us all, including the Atlantic Salmon. Thanks for listening, and I hope to be back in early 2022 for more episodes from Ireland on the Fly, finding out about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.